Over the past few weeks, we've been sharing the story of Tyrion, a young slave separated from his family. He's been on a thrilling and death-defying adventure, accompanied by his guide, Acker. The duo are headed toward the royal homeland, where the reigning king is set to host a glorious Christmas celebration on the eve of the winter solstice. So far, Tyrion has escaped prison, leapt over a deep chasm, nearly drowned, fought off a bandit, and conquered a wizard in the test of wit. He has with him three gifts, a pearl, a dagger, and a crown. The reunion is sure to be a happy one if he can survive the treacherous dangers that lie ahead on his Christmas quest. From the distance, a coyote's howl interrupted the rhythmic crunch of boots marching in ankle-deep snow. Tyrion and Acker's conversation had stopped a while back as they now devoted themselves to basic breathing. The stroll had turned into a difficult uphill hike, and the last two days had been spent climbing up the mountain. Snow fell in waves now, and the wind was bitter. The adrenaline from Tyrion's victory over the shaman had long worn off, and he was again wondering if the trip to the homeland was worth it. He asked Acker, How much further? I need to take a break. Probably another half hour till we reach the peak. Then we'll hit a cave where we can camp. You're doing great. Most folks would have collapsed a long time ago. You mean that was an option? The cave wasn't particularly warm, but Tyrion was grateful they weren't hiking anymore. He was also thankful for his new boots and reflected on the progress he'd made in them. How many more miles to the royal homeland? Are we going to make it in time for the celebration? Acker gazed out from the cave. The blizzard cost us a lot of time. He seemed distracted as he tossed a blanket toward Tyrion. The guide prepped his bunk and offered a courteous good night as he turned in for the night. Tyrion followed suit and soon drifted off. After a fitful night's sleep, Tyrion woke to find Acker marking a route on a map. I'm afraid I've got some bad news. When we make it down to the foot of the mountain, I'm going to have to leave you. I've got to deliver the food we bought in Hadish to an orphanage in the valley. I had wanted to do that and take you the rest of the way, but we're way behind because of the blizzard. But, but I don't know the, the way. Can I come with you? No, Tyrion. You've got to push on to the homeland. Your family isn't sure if you're alive or dead. They're, they're eager to see you. Plus, I, I can't let you miss the celebration. The guide smiled and reminded him of the holiday festivities awaiting him. You can make it. This will help. Acker gave him the map, showing colorful sketches of the path and landmarks. As they set off downhill, Acker carefully described the road ahead and gave Tyrion pointers on how to avoid its hazards. The chatter was lively and upbeat as they were traveling much faster this day. The weather was still cold but clear. Acker pointed to a green triangle on the map. This tree is your most important landmark. It's the King's Evergreen. When you see it, you'll know you're at the entrance to the royal homeland. How will I know it's the right tree? We're traveling through a forest, and all I've seen for the last few days are trees. You'll know this tree. It stands 200 feet tall. When you see it, you won't want to take your eyes off it. It's the most amazing tree in the world. Acker's smile left as his finger moved to highlight a dark mass of lines that blocked the path to the tree. Now this, Tyrion, this is the thicket. 
He spoke solemnly as he described a jungle of weeds, thorns, and briars, made treacherous by vipers and venomous insects. The key to navigating safely through the thicket is this map. If you follow it and pay close attention to the twists and turns as they're drawn here, you can hike through to the other side. It's a curving maze of a route with traps and pitfalls designed to knock you from the path. So you should ignore the shortcuts. As tempting as they might be, stick to the path. If you're in danger, trust your training. Everything you've encountered up to this point is experience you can lean on. Acker deliberately shifted the conversation back to happier subjects, and it wasn't long before he was again enthusing about Christmas. Well, I was going to wait for the great gift exchange, but I'm not sure I'll be back in time. He reached into his satchel and presented Tyrion with a small metal cube. This is a tender box. It contains some flint, steel, and wood shavings. You never know when you'll need to start a fire. Tyrion thanked him and admired the brass container. Acker explained how the device worked, and about the time he was done, the path opened into a clearing. A fork in the road loomed ahead. They both immediately knew what this meant. Acker divided up their provisions and gave Tyrion a few final reminders. He shook the teen's hand firmly and dispatched him with a warm blessing. Confidence, peace, and faith. Acker hiked away. Tyrion gulped at the prospect of going alone. He jogged ahead quickly and repeated the mantra. Confidence, peace, and faith. Confidence, peace, and faith. Confidence, Tyrion had peace, traveled nearly five miles when a patch of ominous clouds moved in overhead, casting a pall over the path. A wind wafted in toward the hiker, and the sinister smell of sulfur drifted in atop a boil of fog. The butterflies in his stomach were signaling that the thicket was just around the next bend. The terrain changed from wooded countryside to a gray and eerie tangle of enormous barbed weeds and intertwined bushes. The blackened underbrush was thick and deformed. Large, sharp spikes encroached on the overgrown path. Tyrion read the map and walked cautiously. Sickly symptoms began to set in as he moved forward. Despite the freezing temperatures, he felt clammy, and the back of his neck was wet from sweat. The sulfurous stench induced a bout of vertigo, and the ensuing dizziness brought the thicket to life. Gnarled tree limbs seemed to lunge at his eyes. Thorns seized his shirt. Horrible giant bugs poured out of dead logs and scurried by in droves. Branches creaked overhead, and the distant snarls of wild beasts created a most unnerving soundtrack. Snakes rattled quickly past his feet. Fear was beginning to overtake the traveler as he staggered down the next alley. His eyelids filled with liquid, and he struggled to see past the tears to orient himself on the map. In the distance, Tyrion noticed a pinprick of light and a blob of greenery. That must be the king's evergreen. He ignored the map's directives and raced ahead. He climbed over a mass of rotten limbs and found what seemed to be a forward path opening in the brush. He heaved himself clumsily through the thicket, desperately chasing the mirage of light. His foot caught on a log and he tripped awkwardly. It was a trap. 
He was flung headlong into a deep, dark pit encrusted with thick vines. In a moment, Tyrion was tangled horribly. Long tentacles of the plants encased the teen's torso. He thrashed uncontrollably as the thorns and briars cut into his flesh. The more he flailed his arms and legs, the tighter the vines clinched. Oxygen was scarce in the dark tunnel of plants. Gasped, desperate to breathe. He spun and tossed. A surge of panic welled up. The blackness of the pit was absolute. He couldn't see a thing. Fear overtook him, and a sequence of nightmarish faces sprang to mind. The prison guard. The bandit, the wizard. They mocked with familiar insults. You'll never make it out alive. Give me that pearl. Betrayed, I surely Give will break. Give me that pearl. You'll never make it out alive. Give me that Betrayed, pearl. I surely will break. You'll never make it out trust. alive. Trust. Betrayed, I surely The word trust betrayed, suddenly materialized over the taunt. Betrayed, I surely will You've break. You've got to trust. Betrayed, I surely will break. Betrayed, I surely will break. Betrayed, I surely The villainous phrases retreated, replaced by Acker's confident advice. Don't panic. Relax. You've been trained for this very moment. Confidence, Confidence peace, peace, and faith. Tyrion stopped thrashing. The pit was dark as night, but he closed his eyes anyway, slowing his pulse, fortifying his will. Then he lowered his head and relaxed his arms and legs. And despite the blindness... He successfully untangled himself from the vines. He mustered his strength and stood up. He recalled the Christmas gift from Acker and took the tinderbox from his pocket. He sparked the flint and fashioned a torch out of a nearby branch. Light flooded the area, and he quickly found a route, climbing up and out of the ditch. Morale restored, Tyrion followed the map. He avoided the tempting shortcuts and made his way more deliberately through the thicket. After a few hours... A sweet breeze drifted its way through the weeds. The unmistakable scent of evergreen drew him forward. He looked through the growth and confirmed a sunlight exit just ahead. He emerged from the thicket, and just as Acker said, Tyrion spied the most beautiful tree he had ever seen. The enormous green tower was full and vital. Its needles sparkled with drips of dew. Its grandeur was clear, but the tree's most remarkable feature was its produce. The limbs dipped from the weight of the most amazing variety of ripe, colorful fruit. Oranges, plums, apples, pears, limes, figs, lemons, cherries. Every conceivable color, type, and kind was represented in a sensational array of options. Tyrion slowly circled the base of the great evergreen and gazed in awe. He felt a warm sense of belonging and arrival, his cheeks were warm with joy, and a smile spread from ear to ear. He reached forward to select a ripe peach from the tree, when a warm voice cheerfully called out, Welcome to the royal homeland. You know, in our series Christmas Quest, we have been describing the idea that ultimately Christmas was about heaven. In the same way that our story, The Orphan, God burst into the scene, told us that we were living in a world that we were not created for. And that he sent his spirit to come and tell us that there was a world of meaning and purpose that we are made for. And on the journey from this world to that world, we would have challenges of temptation, challenges of deception, 
we'd have to navigate. And he would give us a book known as the Bible that would help us navigate this world we're broken into. And that the ultimate journey, the ultimate signpost to point us to the next world was a tree. A tree that the king had planted. A tree that the baby would eventually die upon. And that tree, the cross, when you came to that tree, when you saw that that tree pointed you to another world, you could be filled with the fruit of joy and peace and gentleness, even while you live here in a world filled with thickets. And today, we, like our orphan, are on a journey, wondering if there really is another world that Christmas promised that we're made for. And on the way, we do have the voice of God telling us about faith and hope and confidence and forgiveness. We also have the promise of Christmas. The promise that heaven came to earth in one installment, and it promises to come again in another. But I want to take you back to the original promise of that heaven child. It was at 800 B.C. A man named Isaiah is told to tell the people in the midst of incredible thicket of difficulty during a time when the Babylonian Empire was conquering them and would keep them conquered for 70 years. And the Persians would conquer the Greeks. And then the Romans, I'm sorry, the, the Persians would conquer the Babylonians. The Greeks would comp, comp, let me slow down. The Greeks would then conquer the Persians and the Romans would conquer the Greeks. For 800 years, they'd have to wait for the promise of the heaven child. And here's what we learn about the heaven child. Come back one slide. The promise of the heaven child is that he would come from heaven to earth and he would bring heaven to earth in the second installment. Here's what happens. The first gift we're going to look at is the gift of forgiveness. Because Christmas in heaven gives us the gift of forgiveness, perseverance, and ultimately hope. Isaiah is given a vision of heaven, which will include a promise of a Christ child. And when he sees this vision, he is suddenly enthralled by the idea of a new type of forgiveness. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I got a peek into heaven, sitting on his throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. The posts of the door were shaken by the voice who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. And immediately, we're not talking about Greek Gnosticism. We're not talking about energy in the next life. We're not talking about clouds. We're not talking about a boring place where Casper the friendly ghosts are all wandering around and you're one of them. It's a real place with real structures, with real people you can recognize, with real bodies, with real power, with real beauty, with real majesty. A place of ultimate goodness, ultimate innocence, and ultimate joy. And when Isaiah peeks into this little glimmer of heaven, he is struck with his need for forgiveness. If he thought he was a pretty good person, he was a prophet, he was religious. But when he sees the goodness of God, he realizes his goodness falls far short. When he sees the innocence of heaven, he realizes how little innocence he has. When he sees the incredible joy and thankfulness of heaven, he's struck by how unthankful and how critical and grumbling he is. And he says, woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips living 
and dwelling in the midst of a generation of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the kingdom of the Lord of hosts. So you can delude yourself into thinking you're basically a good person. We do it all the time. But when you see how good good really is in a vision of heaven, you realize, oh my goodness. I am not going to get into heaven based on my own good works. I need to be forgiven for even my good deeds. I think they're better than they are. And my bad deeds are far worse. The vision of heaven shows you your need for forgiveness, promises and offers forgiveness, and allows you to extend that to people that you too can forgive. We used to love jet skiing. I had one of those 1977 Kawasaki's like James Bond had in the original movie, which is where they designed jet skis, by the way, is for the movie. So we were cruising along one day, and I was home from college. It was my dad, my brother, and I. And we decided to head down the Illinois River. I grew up on the river in Pekin, Illinois area. And we came to a place where one smaller river, the Mackinac, ran into the Illinois. We pulled alongside, and we're hanging out for a bit, having a snack. And I reached down into the water, and I found that the silt coming out of the Mackinac River was awesome. It could make a perfectly black mud ball. My brother's back was turned. What's a guy to do? To which he realized that we were sitting on this vast volume of mud fights. So he reaches in and starts throwing. My dad gets involved. And we are having this incredible mud fight. Mud in our hair, mud on our arms, mud everywhere. After having about a 20-minute mud fight, like, all right, we got to get going. Let's wash off. Great. So we jump into the Illinois River, very similar to the Ohio River. And we completely cleansed ourselves. We were washed. We were clean. We got up. No more chunks in the hair. And we said, wow, how do you look? You look fine. How do you look? I look fine. Great. We're clean. Until we got home and saw mom. Walking into a dwelling that was clean, a dwelling that was pure, and somebody who had not been in the mud fight, as soon as we walked in the door, she said, what happened to you? We went boating. Why are you such a disaster? What are you talking about? We cleaned up. Cleaned up. You've got this like film, this river film all over your body. You need to go take a shower. And that's what happened to Isaiah. Living in a world of brokenness, you can think you're clean. But when you step into a realm of cleanliness, you suddenly realize just how much forgiveness, how much cleaning you really need. It's like when it comes to, to wrapping... Um, Christmas gifts. I always thought I was a good Christmas wrapper because my dad, when he would wrap a gift, he used packaging tape and duct tape. So compared to my dad's wrapping, you could always tell a Ross Hoven gift. I thought, man, I'm great. I use scotch tape, Christmas gifts, not Christmas wrapping, not newspapers. I am the best wrapper in the world. And then I got married to a woman who wraps like an artist, who has a sister who wraps like an artist, and a mother my mother-in-law, who wraps things that you feel bad opening, they look so good. And suddenly, whoa, I was undone. I am not a good rapper. I am not a good Christmas. I was only good compared to my dad's rapping, not compared to real rapping. I needed cleaning. I needed fixing. I was broken. And that's what happens as he looks to God and says, God, I am undone now that I've seen heaven. I'm a man of unclean lips. And God says, well, here is the promise of heaven. If you will admit that you're not as clean as you think you are, if you will admit that you need my forgiveness, here's what he tells Isaiah in the next part of the passage. He says, your sins, your iniquities, your moral failures, your inadequacies, your weaknesses, 
your inability to live up your own standards, that's what the word iniquity means, will be taken away. You see, one of the seraphim flew to him, taking in his hand a live coal, and he put it up to his unclean lips. He says, I will cleanse you. He touched his mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity was taken away and your sin is purged. Now, now get this, because most people come to church or they sort of just close enough to religion to know enough to be dangerous. And here's what most people think the Bible teaches. Are you made some mistakes, go to confession, and then you get another chance. That is not the good news. The good news is that when you come to God and admit that you are broken, admit that you are woe is me unclean, Everything you've ever done, past, present, and future, is taken away. Everything you've ever done or will do is purged out. Doesn't that mean that you'll just do whatever you want now because there's no guilt and fear to keep you, keep you obeying? Well, there's no guilt and fear to keep you obeying because now you're motivated by love. Somebody loved you enough to purge you and forgive you of everything you ever did or will do wrong, and now you operate in grace and forgiveness. You're able to forgive others what they do because you've been forgiven of so much by God. The gift of heaven is the promise of a heavenly forgiveness this Christmas season. This is not a willpower, try harder, I'm going to be a little nicer kind of forgiveness. This is an otherworldly forgiveness. The kind that Mary Johnson found. This is a photo of Mary Johnson in Israel, Oshia, Israel. She met him when her son was 16. This man, Oshia, when he was 16, murdered her son. She got the news from the police. She was filled with anger and bitterness toward God, toward him in a way that no one who has not been in that situation would ever know. It was eating her alive. As a follower of Christ who's been forgiven for killing God's son, she was challenged, would she be willing to forgive somebody who killed her son? She felt like God was asking her to work with mothers. Mothers of children who've been killed. But in a strange way, she felt like God was asking her to work with the mothers of children who were killers too. To deal with those emotions, the grief, the need for comfort. So she decided while he was serving in prison to go and visit him. He stepped up and she said, you don't know me and I don't know you. And you didn't know my son and he didn't know you. But I'd like to start a conversation because I want to forgive you the same way my God forgave me. And over the next few years, she continued to visit. She began to connect. She began to hear his story. She could tell that he was deeply sorry. And the friendship formed to the point at which when he was released from prison, she, the mother of the boy he killed, gave him a coming home party, and they are now neighbors. That's not willpower. That's not try harder forgiveness. That is otherworldly forgiveness. The only way you can forgive someone like that is if you've been forgiven like that. It's only when you know you've killed God's son that you're able to forgive somebody who killed your son. When asked her secret, here's what she said. It's powerful. She said, unforgiveness is like a cancer. It will eat you from the inside out. It's 
It's not about the other person. Me forgiving him does not diminish what he's done. Yes, he murdered my son. But forgiveness. Forgiveness is for me. It's for me. And his life began to be transformed that he could be loved and forgiven this way, despite serving his time. He said, I haven't totally forgiven myself yet. I'm learning to forgive myself. I'm still growing toward trying to forgive myself. It's forgiveness you receive and it's forgiveness you extend. That's the power of Christmas forgiveness. The second thing that heaven gives you that Isaiah finds is that it gives you incredible perseverance in the present. God shows up and the voice of God appears to him from heaven and says, Whom shall I send to tell the people living in Babylon that 800 years of this is going to go on before the hope comes of heaven in its first installment? And he says, oh, by the way, let me tell you about the mission you have. Go tell the people about heaven, this other world, this other dimension, this other place they're made for. But keep on hearing, but they're not going to understand you. Keep on seeing, but they're not going to perceive. Which is God's way of saying, no one will listen to you your entire life. I'm calling you to be a preacher, to proclaim this new world, to tell people about a different way of living, and not one person will ever come up after a message and say, I really enjoyed that. Not one person will say, that was very helpful. Not one person your entire career will say, I'm going to change because of what you said. They will not perceive. They will not understand. Who wants to sign up for that career? To which Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Because if heaven came to tell me about this domain, I will spend my life persevering in the most difficult job, in the most difficult circumstances, to tell people there's a God who can forgive them, can wash them, can purge them. I am willing to go and serve the most difficult, uncomfortable, unproductive places Because I know God will reward me for what I've done. Now let me show you how practical this is in history. Rodney Stark is a sociologist and a historian. He's written many books. This is one of his newest called The Triumph of Christianity. The question he asks as a sociologist is, how did Christianity win the day? How did it go from 5 to 8% of the population to taking over the Roman Empire and over 50% of the population by two, 300 were followers of Jesus in Rome? He said, because of their mindset on heaven. See, a couple of things that happened during the first couple centuries. Two huge plagues hit the Roman Empire. 165 A.D., a 15-year plague was devastating the countryside. Another plague hits at 251 A.D. It also goes for 15 years. By reading the records, it looks like it was either smallpox or measles. But people were dying. One town of a million people was losing 5,000 a day. Greeks and Romans didn't have a real attachment to your family. If your family got sick, you had but one life to live. So you said to your brother, your wife, your son, your nephew, you're sick, sorry, and you abandoned them. You left them. And if you had means, if you had any kind, whether you're middle class or upper class, the first thing you did is you got away from anyone sick. You ran away from danger. You only have one life. You've got to protect it. You don't know what this plague is. And so all the people are abandoned in the city. And what was amazing, he shows that the, 
the revolution of the Christianity was not amongst the poor. It was amongst the middle class and the upper class professionals who said, I'm going to go into the city, into the plague, into the hurting, and I'm going to be a healer and a hero. And all of a sudden you had a new family. It was called a Christian family where you became the brother of somebody who didn't know a Roman, a Greek, a Jew. Because you had a common belief that you were in God's family and you cared for one another. And even though you're sick, I want to help you. And even if we die together, I want to sacrifice for you. And this was so rational if you believed in heaven. Because you don't have one life to give. You're going to live forever. You have the hope that death has been defeated and you will one day raise again. And you will raise again and be in the place of perfect peace. And because you were so set on heaven, you said, if I die, I die. But God's called me to help bring heaven to earth, to bring healing, to bring help. And all of a sudden, the Greeks and Romans are so attracted to this generosity, this care. They set up clinics all over the Roman Empire, this new type of family, this new type of community, this new type of heavenly mindedness that had incredible earthly good. They were able to persevere through the most difficult of circumstances and change the world because heaven makes you a healer. And heaven makes you a hero. Now, I'm not saying you have to be a Christian to be a hero. I'm just saying it's rational. A grenade is thrown into, into the building here today. If you know that you don't have one life to give, only one life to live, you jump on that grenade and you may sacrifice for others because you know This is not your final chapter. You're going to be raised again. It makes sense that I would give my little sliver of a life so that I can have my eternal life. Now, somebody who's an atheist could still throw themselves on a grenade. I'm just saying it's not real rational. If you rot to death and this life is all you have, you can do it and it's nice. And you'll have a little story told about you for a little bit and then people forget about you. But actually, it's not real rational to give your life for others when you only have one life to live. But heaven's different. Heaven makes you a healer and heaven makes you a hero. Corey Ten Boone, I don't know if you've heard her story before. She was a Jewish follower of Christ who found herself in one of the Nazi camps. Dark, dark dungeon of a place. Supposed to hold 50 women. They crammed in 250 instead. People from all different backgrounds, most of which were Jewish for obvious reasons. And she began in the midst of this dark, dark area that she lived in to... Set her mind on the other world. She began to thank God for the perseverance he was giving her in the midst of the difficulty. She and her sister began to find ways to, instead of complain and be critical, but to care for all the women crushed into this place. It was filled with fleas. They were getting eaten by fleas bit, bit, bit all the time. And yet it was the fleas that kept the guards from coming in and raping them. And so they would out loud in the midst of this camp, they would say, God, thank you for the fleas. People are attracted to this. How are you finding peace in this circumstance? How are you finding joy in this circumstance? She said, I keep my mind focused on heaven. She said, here's my secret. In heaven, there's no panic. Heaven has no problem, only plans. In the midst of my problems, I remember that God has plans, even in the midst of the darkness of a POW camp. C.S. Lewis has a great way of saying this in one of his books. He said, the people that did the most good in this world are the ones who thought the most of the next. It is sense that Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world, that they become so ineffective in this one. If you aim at heaven, 
you get earth thrown in. If you aim at earth, you end up with neither. Which is why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added unto you. Keep focused on the things of heaven, other centeredness, sacrifice, and all the other things take care of themselves. Because heaven gives you incredible perseverance in the present. The third thing heaven does, and it's certainly what Isaiah finds, is heaven gives you incredible hope. And here in the middle of this little prophecy, this, this proclamation of heaven, we see the promise of the Christ child at 800 B.C. to Isaiah. By the way, in the midst of your difficulty in Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome, remember, a child will be born. A son will be given. And Isaiah's struggling trying to figure out how to communicate what this child is. He's an earthly child. He's going to be physically born. But he's also a son of God that will be given. He's, he's God and man. He's the mighty God. He's a counselor. Oh, he's wonderful. He's also never had a beginning. He's everlasting. So he's the son, but he's the father. He's born, but he's been everlasting. And Isaiah is trying his best to communicate the idea that God would send a special type of messenger, the God-man. The God-man would come into earth to bring us a glimpse of heaven and give us access to heaven. But they would have to wait. But let's imagine for a moment, just look at those words, counselor, wonderful, mighty. Imagine the best friend you've ever had. Maybe it's somebody you have now. Maybe it's a friend back in high school or college. Somebody who listened, who encouraged, who harassed you, who brought things out of you that you didn't even know existed. Imagine that friend. Holding on to that, I want you to imagine the best counselor you ever went to. Somebody who really helped you work through some junk from the past. That helped you find freedom. That helped you take the steps you needed to get free from some old patterns. And for those of us who've never been to a counselor, you're like, I can't imagine that. You might want to go to one. But let me give you something else to imagine. Maybe it was a boss. It was the first boss who gave you your first break. He mentored you in business. He set you up to have the skills that you have today that made you able to do the things you've been able to do. Imagine your best friend, a counselor, a mentor. Put all those people in your life together and you're not even close to what this Christ child wants to be for you. He is everything you ever wanted, everything you ever imagined, all put together in one person. The hope of heaven. And heaven gives you the hope that God works in the midst of difficulty as heaven comes to earth. Let me compare and contrast two Johns for you. Jonathan Edwards, one of America's greatest theologians, with John Lennon, one of our greatest musicians. Jonathan Edwards... At age 23, I believe, he wrote down that he was going to resolve, he had several of these resolves, I'm going to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the next world as I possibly can with all the power and might and vigor and veminence and violence I'm capable of, which is a way of just saying I'm going at it, or can bring myself to exert in any way I can think of. I want to spend my life giving and sacrificing for others so I can have the most amount of happiness in heaven. 
Because I know God rewards that kind of work. God rewards that kind of generosity. He rewards that kind of joy. He rewards that kind of other-centeredness. That is the domain of heaven, and I want to bring heaven to earth. His heavenly mindness gave him a mindset to be earthly good. I contrast that with John Lennon. In his great song, Imagine. It's a beautiful song, but think about what he's saying. He said, you know how we could be nicer to each other if we didn't think about heaven? Imagine there's no heaven. Oh, it's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people who didn't think about that kind of superstitious nonsense. We would start living for today and we'd be nice today. That's a beautiful song, but is that true? If there was no accountability to your actions, why not be power hungry? Why not be greedy? Why not step on people? There's no accountability. Why not live for yourself? Why not say he who dies with the most toys wins? If there's no reward in the future, if there's no accountability in the future, it's not rational. It was those who had the heaven mindset who did the most earthly good through history. Because they knew there was a heaven child who came from heaven to earth. But lastly, and this promise is so weird, you're going to say, Chad, you, you must not really mean what you say you're about to say. Chad, that's so crazy. Because the Bible teaches that just like Star Wars has many installments, this week, the first Star Wars movie since 1983, that's good, I can't wait, this Thursday. The Bible teaches that heaven comes in the first installment in the manger, and the second installment is still in the future, that we still are waiting the 800 years for finally that realm to come and dwell on earth. That the Christ child would come in from heaven to earth, but later he would return and bring heaven to earth. And that's what he says. He says, a child will be given, a son will, a child will be born, a son will be given. And look what happens. Next verse. The government will be on his shoulders. He's going to bring his kingdom to earth. He's going to increase his administration, his kingdom. And he's going to bring a peace on earth that will know no end. His throne, the throne of David... And over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward and even forevermore. Chad, what are you saying? The Bible teaches that heaven will one day come and dwell on earth. So you don't just have a little sliver on earth. You get to spend eternity on a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. What you love about earth, you'll get the kind of earth that doesn't have hurricanes and doesn't have tornadoes. Like, you've got to be kidding. You think Jesus is coming back and he's going to come and bring heaven to earth? Chad, that's like the same category as like alien abduction. You seem so rational up to this point. But don't you want heaven to come to earth? Don't you sense something's wrong not just in us but in the world? Haven't you said your whole life things should be different? There shouldn't be sickness. There shouldn't be pain. Something's wrong with this world? So even if you don't believe it and it sounds crazy, you'll want to believe it because, oh, I want the benefits of that. I want the results of that. Yes, that, if only that could be true. And the more you know that the earth will one day have heaven rain upon it, you begin to say, I don't want to wait till then. I want to start now. What if I began to practice the values of heaven right now in my sphere of influence? Last week I was up in Chicago speaking to a international gathering of pastors and I was just amazed and humbled by the people who were sitting in the audience. One guy's name was Joshua. Joshua Lewer is sitting in the front. He came up. He says, man, when you tell me what God's doing at Horizon, some of the interesting ways in which you're drawing people to God, 
it is totally transforming the way I'm doing ministry. I go, oh, well, great. Well, I appreciate that. I said, well, what do you do? He said, well, I am the bishop over 25,000 churches in Uganda. We have had tribal war and killing for most of our history. So I have begun a journey of working with politicians and leaders in Uganda in a campaign called the Uganda We Want, where I'm teaching people what it would be like to bring heaven to earth. So much so that one of the early dictators who'd killed off hundreds and hundreds of people when he came to power, Joshua got the new president in 2012, President Museveni, to stand up before the world and confess his personal sins on the national news and then confess the sins of the country, the shedding of innocent blood, the brutality, the witchcraft. And now he travels around tribe by tribe and lets people share, this is what you did to my brother, this is what you did to my uncle. And through public confession and forgiveness, Uganda is being changed one territory at a time by a man who wants to see heaven come to earth. It's powerful. One glimmer of heaven can change everything. Think about Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, in a moment of despair and darkness, they got a glimmer of a light. And the glimmer of the light in the future gave them peace in the present. Do you remember that piece? Let me read it to you. Here's what it says in the Lord of the Rings. There, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tower high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow of the thicket we live in, the shadow of this world and its difficulty was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. For And now, for a moment, his own fate, even his masters, ceased to trouble him. He crawled back into the brambles and laid himself by Frodo's side. And putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. One glimmer of the world to come can give you peace, forgiveness, hope, and perseverance in the present. So invite the man to come. I want to give you two applications to thinking about heaven this Christmas. Number one, it gives you the chance to long for heaven. And two, the chance to be strong on earth. There's a term used by the German romantics. It's called to be zanzucht, a blissful longing. That there's something in all of us that no matter how much we accumulate, no matter how much success we have, we have this zanzucht, blissful longing for something that we can't attain here on earth. It's the body we always wanted that's not falling apart or getting wrinkled. It's the family. Maybe we had a good family, but they never really got along the way we, we wanted them to. We're zanzuked for a family we've never seen. We're zanzuked for a world with no cancer. We're zanzuked for a, a relationship where there's no misunderstanding. And the Bible allows you to say that longing is not wishful thinking. You were designed for a world that's different, so keep longing and keep bringing the strategies and priorities of heaven into your life. Long for heaven. Practice heaven. Forgive. But also be strong on earth. You are living in a thicket. But you too can be like Mary Johnson and offer heavenly forgiveness. You too can be like Corey Tin Boone and have incredible perseverance in the midst of it. You too can be the doctor who becomes a hero and a healer because of a mindset on heaven. 
you too can pursue the priorities of heaven on earth. I shared the last service. This has been a difficult week for me. It was difficult because I had to pursue some reconciliation with somebody that I accidentally, and through a whole series of my own deficiencies, broke some trust. Of my list of deficiencies, some of my biggest ones are I go too fast, as illustrated in this message a few moments. And when I go too fast, I make assumptions and decisions and I don't communicate well because I'm just assuming everything's moving along. It also brings out my lack of attention to detail. But I think the most difficult thing that wounded this relationship was I just forget the complexities of being a special needs dad. And I try and operate as if things are normal. And yet the chaos that that brings into our life caused sort of a perfect storm that caused me to hurt somebody I very care about. So I spent all week not working on a message, but trying to live a message, trying to reconcile, trying to explain, trying to forgive, trying to pursue forgiveness, trying to own my own stuff and take responsibility for what I did. I need heaven because I need to persevere and be strong on earth. And just in the last day, in the last day, loving on my son who has special needs, named Quinn, we had to run up to Dayton to get gymnasium pads we found on Craigslist because we're going to have to redo his whole room with pads because he's bashing his head into a wall again after we thought we had fixed that 18 months ago. The plexiglass that I put up nine months ago to keep him from jumping over the balcony because he's a two-year-old in a six-year-old body. He grabbed a piece of plexiglass and broke it. So it's just one more thing to run to Home Depot and then figure out how to put it up and do we need to actually install new walls. And It's just utter chaos, hour by hour. Just as we're having lunch and we'll send him outside where we had to put a gate up, a six-foot gate, so he wouldn't escape because he's escaping five times a day. And as we're cooking food, we look out and all of a sudden all of his clothes are off something we've been working on for the last week. He's jumping up and down naked, and it's like, somebody go get them. I'll try and keep making food. Comes back in, and he needs medicine so that he can sleep at night, and he came home. He came in, and somebody left out an extra one. He took it. If he takes it during the day, he just screams and yells and gets mad because he doesn't want to fall asleep. So we couldn't come to church last night. Well, my wife couldn't, and Quinn, because of this medicine that he accidentally took. And then he wakes up just screaming mad for an hour, and she's texting me while I'm in the message, and Adopting and being nice to people sounds romantic. But real giving and real sacrifice is just a lot of hard work. And the hope of heaven is that you can be filled with strength you don't have, forgiveness you don't have, and hope you don't have, Because you have access to a source. You know this world is broken, and yet you know it will one day be repaired. And in the meantime, you practice forgiveness. You own everything you can that you've done. And you tell God you want to adore him as the king of heaven. Well, thanks for joining us here for our Christmas quest. You're not going to want to miss next week as we finally get our orphan to the promised land. He finally gets to that celebration. You don't want to miss what happens, and then we want to invite you to be part of a Christmas Eve celebration. We're going to do eight services. Speaking of being strong on earth, 11, 12, 1, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. If you have not got tickets yet, you can grab those up by the fireplace.
Uh, if you can help us out, the 11, 12, and 7 have the most tickets available. Thank you for being here. Merry Christmas. Go in peace, and we'll see you again next week. Thanks again.